Welcome to another BitFlix.com podcast. My guest today is a returning guest. Hello, CJ Wally. How are you? Hello. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be back. I'm feeling pretty good today. It's a lovely sunny day up here in Stoke-on-Trent. We have come together on this podcast to talk about your book, which is, is, is about screenwriting. So it is the scriptwriter's guide to writing better screenplays faster, and you're calling that Turn and Burn. Turn and burn. Turn and burn, baby. As a phrase. Now, before we get into, we're going to do five times five, where we've broken down thoughts about your book into five segments. But before we do that, you're obviously a screenwriter in your own right. And since we spoke, last spoke, which is a good few years now, you've seen your words turned into action. So do you want to, just before we get into it, do you want to just talk about, just talk briefly about the films that you've seen get made with the words that you've written? Yes, I I was approached by um, a producer called Shane Stanley, who he was executive producer of Gridiron Gang, which is a global box office number one star in The Rock. And he saw my blogs, read my scripts and reached out and said, hey, we should collaborate. And I thought, well, this is a load of nonsense, completely untrue. and It's never going to happen and was very awkward and difficult about it. And then he pushed and pushed and pushed and it was the real deal. So um, we made a, a feature film back in 2019 called Break Even, which starred Tasha Tellez, had Steve Gutenberg in it, which was this kind of exciting thriller, which punched really above its weight. And we released that December of the next year. And then we hit COVID and we managed to squeeze out a fun little kind of exploitation flick with a lot of action in called Double Threat, which um, we managed to do out in the in the desert with just minimal of everything. Um, and that will be getting a release soon in, um, in sort of late spring, early summer in the US. And then we're just in post-production on our latest film called Night Train. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a sort of a bit of a thrill, a bit of a drama, a little bit of action in there, which again, we kind of did on the tail end of COVID on that. So yes, I'm really pleased to say I've got three feature films to my name now as a writer, two of which I'm a producing partner on as well now. So broadening my uh, scope a little bit. So when you say you're, you're now a producing partner, what, how did that role then evolve out of being the writer? Um, well, it was something I never went chasing after. I never thought I'd be a producer. I thought, well, that's a bit too scary and far too much responsibility for someone like me. And um, it was when we went into Double Threat, it was a big question of the size of the budget, the size of my fee, my responsibilities, how much I'd done on break even because I'd been involved all over that. I didn't care where my responsibilities really ended on that. I was kind of sniffing around everywhere. Oh, you want to give me something to do that? Let me get learn more about this. And kept wearing a lot of different hats. So we went into double threat with this situation. Well, we've got a limited budget. COVID costs are spiraling out of control. What can we do here? And I thought, I'm going to have a very awkward conversation with my producing, well, my producer, my director, over my compensation, things like that. And I said, look, let's make this easier. Can I have participation, please, rather than a fee? so we can afford to do this. And he said, so you want to be a, an owner? And I'm like, yes, please. And that's how that got set up. And mm. now I'm just up to my elbows in it. Can't get enough of it. Good lad, good lad. So with, with that growing experience and, and, and seeing, seeing, how, seeing the journey from 
obviously concept to script to then screen. Um, what was it about? What was it about that learning experience that sort of made you sort of begin to understand? Well, you know what? I think there's things I can be writing down here that would go together to form some thinking on how screenplays can work. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a particularly logical brain. I have dyslexia. I have dyscalculia. So structured things are very difficult for me to get my head around. And I derive a tremendous amount of satisfaction from doing that. Mm. But I'm the kind of person that if you gave me a pizza order and it was five different pizzas, God forbid what's coming back because I am going to forget it very fast. I, I, can't, handle, I can't handle numbers. I can't count change when I'm paying for things in the store. It's, it's really quite difficult. Mm. And accounting and stuff like that's really hard for me. So... When I first got into writing, there was all this talk about structure and good structure and what structure should be and all these arguments about whether or not you should use structure or whether or not it was restraining. And then there were these team-like fights about three acts versus five acts and, and everything else and how awful Save the Cat is. And if you've ever read that book, you should be thrown in the sea and various other things. And it caused me a lot of distress for quite some time and... I mean, I really care about the craft. I'm obsessed with screenwriting. So I just read everything I could about mm. structure, about why we tell stories, about where stories play a part in society, and then realized everyone was talking about the same thing. And it just clicked into place. And I suddenly understood the Western commercial storytelling trope of the hero's journey. Yeah, because there is definitely what a, a film critic friend of mine calls it the Anglo-Saxon narrative, which is you know we recognise it as being there's a singular character who mm. starts off wrong, flawed, or whatever it might be, and then at the end they win or lose, but it's a resolve that is to do with what they've experienced, therefore learned and grown. Absolutely, over the and the power of, of that within society, right? Mm. So using that as an example to teach one another important things about how life works. Like mm. this is the fundamental, this is why the elders sit around the campfire and tell the young people these stories. This is why it's used so much within religious texts and things like that. Because when you present a thesis and more importantly, a thesis where someone has had their mind changed. So you're kind of changing the audience's mind along with that or proving it. Mm. then that's incredibly powerful. But I was surprised by how difficult it was for me to just get down to the brass tacks of it. Mm. And that's why I ended up developing my own model, the turn and burn model, the five-act structure, you know, yearn, turn, burn, learn, earn. And that for me was like, huh, that's what they do. That's what the character does. It's a happy accident, not a plan, I should say for the listener, that, my five times five format fits nicely with the core message of your five your five act theory, um, and we're going to do that. And just for the benefit of the listeners coming to this the first time, we will. I've uh, uh, TJ's very kindly prepared me uh, five agenda points, as it were. Mm -hmm. I will sort of read them off, and then I should start a conversation. I mean, it will be coming from you first, and I'll follow your lead. Um, and that'll be to, to five minutes, and then when the alarm goes off, the dog barks, we'll draw that bit to a close and move on to the next one. A little bit of jeopardy, but we can always Absolutely. finish our I thoughts. And I don't want that dog coming for me. I don't <laughs> want that dog. Just, scare me, man. It's a little terrier. It just goes to the ankles, doesn't it? Well, I'm loud. I, I hear it loudest, and when I forget it's there, 
it's uh, it does make me jump occasionally because I'll be I'll be in the conversation with you and or, or all the guests, any guests for that matter, and suddenly it's like the thing will go off and I'll, geez, I'll, and, and it's weird how quickly you forget you've done, you know, you've done something yeah. you know, it's, and I've done this loads of times. But my absent-mindedness aside, let us begin with um, looking at Turn and Burn book and we'll start with the core Turn and Burn five-act stru- story structure theory and fast, more logical writing process from concept to final polish. Do you want to expand on that as a, where, that, where that was leading your thinking? Yeah. So, you know, I find that when you go in and you try to do something creative, that you really, it helps to have a process. And having studied a lot of very accomplished artists in all fields, architecture, photography, you know, pottery, it doesn't matter, is they all have this kind of routine that they go through. They all have this kind of little map that they follow that keeps them on track. And I think one of the problems with script writing in particular is You've got one side of the brain which is handling the abstract, which is taking you to these fantastical worlds where anything can happen and getting into the minds of these other fictional people, which is incredible. And this is other side of the brain which is saying, okay, well, we've got a limited page count. We've got structure we need to follow. We've got scene structure we need to follow. We need to write something entertaining, efficient, and logistically possible to make. And boom, we're suddenly in this lockup where we've got fear dominating us. Mm. And we cut, and we end up, you know, suffering from writer's block and everything else. Also, for me, something that was really frustrating me was this concept of doing vomit drafts or poop drafts, people call them, mm. and writing 300 pages and then going back and trying to decipher that and filter it back into something that's presentable, usable. And I always thought that was, well, that's an incredibly inefficient way to go about it. So I got huge into pre-writing you know, this concept that you lay the whole thing out right down to every single beat before you go in and fill in the detail. In what sense does laying out the detail, because what's the difference between laying out the detail, sorry, laying out the whole thing and then filling in the detail? What det- what, what you're not doing in the, in the pre-write that you then do in the write? What I'm not doing is I'm not sitting there with a blank sheet of paper starting in the top left. Hmm. and try to write descriptive. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details action and dialogue i'm not trying to do that i'm not trying to think do i need to introduce a character here does a monologue need to be here what does this character how's this character going to react in this situation Hmm. so what i'm doing is i'm building story and i'm creating and with turn and burn i'm creating my my five key acts you know yearn turn burn learn earn Hmm. and then i'm putting more bullet points under that as to the character's development these points that they reach, these points of acceptance, points of realization, when mm. their world changes, the points of no return. And I'm just building more and more bullet points right down to the point where an individual scene, I know exactly how the characters are going in, what they intend to do. 
mm-hmm. and and what they intend to achieve and how they're going to try and achieve that and then how the turnarounds take place. And what I end up with is probably like a 50 or 60 page document, maybe as much as that, which is nothing but beats all the way through. And what I love about that is I'm focused purely on the entertainment factor in terms of the structure of the entertainment. And if I want to go and make a change, I just replace a bullet. If I want to go and add something, I just do that. If I have a moment of inspiration or I've got three different ideas, I can just note them down within that. And then I can come back later and I can have all the fun at the fair now because I've got my training wheels on Hmm. and I've got a little map telling me where to go. I've got the bumpers are on the bowling alley, right? So getting that strike is going to be a lot easier. So I get to come in and, and have the fun on, on, on the, 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 the flip side of it and just polish. And that means churning out a really tight first draft, which I think is important in a professional capacity. I mean, it's the, the, the argument is, isn't it, that a vomit draft means more rewriting and more pre-writing means less drafting. As it were, that's the hopefully the theory, which Should like be. you say leads to I've kind of done I I flip between the two. Um I know that I enjoy getting a better first draft out. That always feels much more satisfying than than word vomit over 90 pages, which you kind of know I've got to go back and read this at one point and I won't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. But you are satisfied in the fact that you've um you've maybe discovered who your main character is and that might be all you've got. So you've got 90 pages to do that. Whereas I think what you're saying is, is that there's a benefit to maybe finding out a little bit more about your character before you commit to 90 pages is what you're sort of saying. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's some cold pragmatic stuff that has to be done. I think there's a lot of exploration that can be done by prompting you to think of these things in other ways in the planning process. And, um, I think that's good from a professional standpoint as well, because um, it means you can take people along on the development journey. I totally agree. I mean, I think that's why, you know, you, you see a lot in sort of, certainly social media, this idea of I don't like outline and I don't like doing treatments. Mm. But if you're working with someone that doesn't, that doesn't, that, that goes from, here's a log line, here's 95 pages. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, if that's the journey they've been on, it's not much of a journey. You've been through hell. Mm. And you know every you've got all the cuts and bruises to prove it, but that all they see is maybe not as good a quality scripts yeah. as they're expecting. Whereas if they if you can go, here's here I am at three pages, here I am at five mm. pages, here I am at twenty pages of I mean, I guess is it do you find it's like because I mean it sounds when you go like you get a bullet point and then sub bullet point and stuff, mm. it's almost like sort of cascade mind mapping for want of a better I mean it sounds like a really yeah. it sounds like a contradictory term but instead of going out you're constantly sort of sort of staircasing your way down so everything's related back to the original bullet point isn't it as you as you grow it yeah I compare it to sketching the okay. way a painter okay. would would build a painting they sketch the form first they get an upper portion right and then they go and paint no painter starts in the top left and does all the colour and detail as they go along wondering what the painting's going to look like by the end that's a good, that, I like that analogy. I like that analogy. Right, so number two, career building advice uh, focused on finding your fit, getting out there rather than waiting around and accepting it's no longer the 90s. 
What's the nineties thing we're stuck? <laughs> this is the, this is the stuff that, that can can rub people up the wrong way. I find that there's this is narrative within screenwriting communities that everyone still thinks it's the early nineties. You can write a spec script, you can become a millionaire, superstar, rock star screenwriter tomorrow, and you're going to make an indie film which just goes to number one, and you're going to be the next Shane Black, the next Quentin Tarantino you know, everything else. And I don't think people fully appreciate how much the landscape's changed Mm. in multiple factors. There's like thousand times more people fighting over the same bun on the table for a star. And then the indie world is completely different now. You, there was in the nineties, you could make an indie film and you could go, you know what, we're going to probably make 5 million on, on video. And that would actually be a reasonable projection. Whereas now you'd be like, well, it's not going to be, it's not easy to sell a film and 99% don't. So I'm trying to challenge that narrative, particularly with my own experience now, not only as a writer who's found work and done a few films, but also as a producer who knows about financing and selling these things. So what what do you mean by them finding your fit? What does that, what does that mean? Yeah. So another thing, an issue I see with most people is they're trying to please everyone. They've got this kind of Goldilocks mentality. They're trying, to, they're trying to make a Goldilocks script, a script that's not too sweet, not too sour for everyone, not too hot, not too cold, right? Mm. Not too hard, not too soft. So they're going around and they're, they're asking everyone for feedback. They want every competition to be a winner. They want every piece of coverage they get to be a recommend. They want everyone to read it, to come back and say what they didn't like, and then to try and tackle that. And what that's doing, I think, and holding a lot of people back, is they're becoming, effectively, they're creating a mediocre product. They're designing by committee. Mm. And they think because they've satisfied all this, that means that they're going to walk into the world of art, they're going to contact producers, and no one's going to be able to say no. But we know that the art world, the creative world, is nothing like that. It's all about being unique and individual and Mm. having something different to offer. There's not going to be, not everyone's going to welcome that. And if there's one thing I've learned from reading the history books is generally speaking, the more radical and interesting you are as an artist, the more resistance you are going to face mm. when you go out there. So this is like, is this like saying that there's, there's going to be 700 no's. It's the 701st yes you want to look for. Exactly that. And, it, and it's about being realistic about this and thinking, you know what, I'm going to look at the niches. I'm going to look at the people making films and who make things in the tone that I write Mm. and I'm going to approach them and I'm going to focus on them. And also accepting, for instance, that maybe you're not a blockbuster, blockbuster, big feature film writer and Mm. and accepting that you don't want to do that or can't do that. And actually being a a small niche indie film writer is where you're supposed to be. Okay. And then, so you, the other part of this one is getting out there rather than waiting around. Now, You've already said you're in Stoke-on-Trent, which is a long way from Hollywood. So do you want to talk, you can obviously speak to your own experience, but what advice are you giving as well? Yeah, I, well, I think, you know, a lot of people, we've got this kind of Cinderella mentality. They're, they're in the basement, they're brush sweeping the floors and singing with the rats and kind of, oh, I'm not expecting anything to happen. I hope someone finds me. And it's, it, well, no one is going to come and find you. Um, it's an incredibly noisy environment. So I do think that you need to get out there and you can get out there in a whole bunch of ways. I mean, for instance, for me, it was actually blogging. Um, I like to write, right? So why wouldn't I put my best assets into something that's marketable, which is blogging. Blogging is like networking online. It's the closest thing we've got Mm. to it. 
So I went out there and I wrote about writing and I wrote about the industry and I wrote some really quite um, volatile stuff. I mean, for instance, I wrote a blog about how we shouldn't all be targeting Hollywood and obsessed with it. Well, turns out that is a great way to win friends in Hollywood because they all hate the town. Everyone in Hollywood hates the place. So when you come along and go, I, this place kind of is, grosses me out, they're like, good, it should do. And, you know, you're not naive and, and caught up in the glamour. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of that. And also marketing yourself, as in getting on social media, getting your website out there, getting your portfolio out there, and everything else that comes with that. And as you, you know, I run scriptrevolution.com, mm. which is built to help people do this because more people need to go out with a script, a logline, a synopsis and everything else and actually say, this is my product. Well, How's that for timing? You timed that well, didn't you? I saw him coming this time. <laughs> he had his little pattering feet. But it, but it's, I just think, I do think it's just, just to stay on that point for a second. I think it is interesting that in the, I guess as well in the time that you've been writing, We've seen the growth of, say, streamers, which in themselves are not Hollywood focused. So the idea of ignoring Hollywood isn't isn't about f you to the film industry. It's actually mm. the focus of the whole film industry has moved now. You know, you you yeah. if you look at like I mean the, the example I always think about is I've never watched as much Spanish genre as I have since Netflix started acquiring it, mm-hmm. and they're making stuff in Spain. Now that's not Hollywood at all. And equally, you're seeing. British stuff getting made through Netflix is, you know, net, I'm using Netflix. You know, they, they've got a production base in the UK. It isn't yeah. Hollywood. And so that that's, a you know, that mindset has actually become a reality in a way. I mean, obviously oh, yes. there still is Disney and Sony and all them kind of big studios and they exist on the lots and Paramount and whatever. And that's, a tri- that's still a truism, but the vast majority of films are not going to get made that way. So... Absolutely do, especially this day and age. And why go where all the competition is? Find the niche, find the gap. Absolutely. Right then, is this is a tough one, and I think that a lot of writers will be listening for what, what you've got to say here. So dealing with depression by loving the process and accepting you are an artist within a cutthroat business world. Yeah, I'm, I'm very open that I've been suffering with clinical depression now on and off for about 10 years, a very dark depression I have to deal with on a daily basis, um, which has taken, you know, which is as bad as, as it gets, I guess, you know, to that point where you're like, you're completely detached from reality and, you know, you wake up in the morning because, you know, someone else jumped in and saved you. And, you know, I've been there and I'm chased by it every day. So, you know, I'd, I'm trying to turn the writing process into something that's incredibly enjoyable and therapeutic. And so many people turn to screenwriting because they're in a bad place in their life. They're looking for a rescue because they've left a creative pursuit too late in life sometimes because they've got money problems or because they love writing and they need writing. Mm. And, they, and then what happens is it's so difficult for it not to start to look like a career prospect and that then makes it you know exponentially tougher psychologically because now you're trying to create good art but you're trying to monetize that you're trying to see light at the end of the tunnel Mm. and I see so many people on this downward spiral this horrible descent 
where the years are piling up and they have this dream, this dream that Hollywood one day, it's always Hollywood, it's always Hollywood itself, the actual center, the glowing golden center of Hollywood is going to go, hey, look at this beautiful, naive, innocent, modest artist. We're going to send them right to the top and they'll have riches and reward and glory and complete unequivocal global acceptance and validation of what they do. And that is a lot to put on to someone. And I watch people and then they think, well, okay, I'll make shorts and the shorts don't get option. And okay, I'll make try indie films and they don't get option. It's really hard, man. It is so hard on people. And writers as a community, we are so brutal to one another. We, we can be horrid for some reason. You go on forums and we can be horrid to one another. And I don't know why, because we we're meant to be the most empathetic creatives out there. So Turn and Burn has a, a large section on turning this round into something positive and, and an upward spiral. So I guess I guess by by loving the process, you you're forgetting the outcome, aren't you? You're you're saying mm-hmm. I have to enjoy this first before I can begin to and not even anticipate, but if I was to enjoy the success, let's say Hollywood did open its doors and say, "Come in, mm-hmm. the water's lovely." With a writer, what you're saying is, is if you if you're not enjoying doing it, yes. all the dreams in the world that come true will, will implode, won't they? If you if you, if then you're if you're forced to do it, yeah, because you've you're never going to find a pinnacle on top of the mountain. You're never going to find a peak of happiness. And the irony is, the more you enjoy your writing, the more chance you stand of building a career because your writing is going to be more vibrant. It's going to have a strong voice. It's going to have an enthusiasm. It's going to be infectious to the people around you. Mm. So the happier creative you are, or at least the most happiest with the art that you're creating that you are, then, yeah, I mean, it actually helps your prospects as well. So there's no reason not to be. There's there's a lot of people that want to just live in misery and this grind mindset. And you see them do that for a decade going nowhere. But also it's that in that sense, then there, there is a little bit, you can indulge yourself, but there is also, if you can recognize you're doing it and have the confidence to step away for a while, because you need mm-hmm. to sort of feel hungry about doing it. And I remember reading, there's an art book called Art and Fear, which is just a, written by two art Good book. And, you know, he talks about, one of them talks about the idea of compulsion. That's what will drive you. Mm. And if the compulsion stops, then stop. Don't feel bad, mm. you know. But but if but while you're compelled, you will always want to do it. You know, it's like for better or for worse, nothing, nothing can stop you, really. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it being fun. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'll, 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 yeah, I totally agree. I'm try, I try. I don't, I don't find all of it fun. Um, but certainly the creative side of it where you're where you're at the beginning of something, if you can't enjoy that bit, then I think you've got to get off the bus. It it feels like what's the because that's the bit where you've got the most freedom, isn't it? Because after after you've after you develop something and it becomes it becomes a, a thing that other people are going to be involved with and have other stakeholders. Absolutely. But there's a, there's a period where you you are the only king of its castle because you, there's only you and it. In, competing with one another, you know, and that's your imagination and everything else. And it's your job. It's your job to have fun with it. Each main chapter has a section where you'll share all the mistakes you've made and how you changed with your approach for the better. Do you want to give us a, give us a, give us an example that stands out for you of like a mistake that you own up to and, and, and how that made you a better writer? 
for those who don't know, the book has these kind of warts, warts and all type um, chapters in where I, I talk about, you know, where I've gone wrong, um, very open about it. And yeah, I think for, for me, I think the, the biggest mistake I meant was made was chasing commerciality. That was quite hard. That definitely t- took me down a bad path. You know, I was writing these kind of very pulpy, gritty, independent style movie scripts that, again, would have played very well in the 90s. I was living in the 90s in my head. And it didn't take long before they started to migrate into these kind of young adult fantasy things and stuff like that. And big through these big blockbuster action sequences, um, because I became, like many people, quite obsessed with what was making it into the theatres. And I kept thinking, well, I didn't keep thinking. I think I was led to think that if I started to imitate that, then I would, I would really raise my prospects. And that's not illogical. It does make sense to see what the market's doing. And I encourage people, particularly looking at what the indie market is doing, and go and look at all those straight-to-DVD movies and Walmart because they are an indicator of what the lowest hanging fruit actually wants. Smart to follow it. At the same time, though, is kind of losing your artistic integrity and vision on that journey and chasing a sound that isn't you, so to speak. So, you know, if we use the band analogy, like if you're a punk band thrashing away in your garage Mm. and you just go for it and you guys are wild and, you know, that's what the crowds love about you. Well, then you put on Radio One and it's kind of kind of fun, little indie family friendly, plucky little tunes. Mm. It's not the right decision to go chasing that because um, it's going to take you so far away from where your voice and interest lies. Um, and, and I had to learn that the hard way. Um, I was amazed, actually. I was amazed by how kind of blinkered I became. And it was giving up. I've given up two or three times in the past. And this one time I gave up, I just sat down and watched all my favorite movies. And I'm like, dude, what the hell are you doing? You really forgot your roots, didn't you? You need to get back and start writing stuff like this. And I came back and it was all different, man. That's what changed everything. But I think it's it's a really good idea that you've integrated into the book because I think all too often, I remember when I first started out, I was bombarded by great examples and great successes and not a lot of what what you what you're you're describing as what you learned and what what you changed about yourself because that didn't see everyone what it's almost like we we kept seeing just the tip of the iceberg and not the bit below mm. the surface and and I've said this before but I'll say it while we're, we're talking about it is I remember listening to an interview with Michael Arndt and he he was talking he was promoting Toy Story 3 at the time so that's what 12 years ago or something and he said um they asked him what was his daily process like like when he wrote and he was the first person ever to not say, I get up at six, I beat myself up, yeah. and then I, then I do six more. He went, he said, I have a coffee, I read the paper, I have a coffee, I read the paper, then I procrastinate till I hate myself. And I'd never heard anyone admit that before. And up until that mm. point, you know, because you're, you're the outsider looking in as you feel as a person trying to become a writer, you go, bloody hell, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with me. That What, what I'm experiencing is perfectly yeah. normal. Oh man, it's so liberating to hear. And 
the last thing I wanted to do was write a book that came across as arrogant. And a lot of screenwriting books are written from this odd place of complete arrogance where they really like dismiss amateur writers and tell everyone their, 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 their script sucks. And this is why it sucks. And they kind of rip into movies and everything else. And when you look the, the writers up and you're like, oh, okay, this a, they kind of got very big headed writing this. And so all I wanted to do is create a book that had at least a, semblance of modesty to it mm. where I'm actually, you know what? I am far from perfect. I'm a, I'm a mess. I'm a neurotic, you know, mess of a man and struggle with my confidence and everything else and make terrible mistakes and, and whatever. And, and we'll be making terrible mistakes now. Um, so, you know, I just wanted an audit, honest, modest book that, that hopefully makes the average aspiring writer feel empowered because they don't feel like they're less than the author. By doing so, it's inclusive as opposed to exclusive. It's like saying... Because mm. the other thing, I remember, I can't remember who told me this one, but like it's it's the idea of, if I say I'm not as good as Tarantino, that's irrelevant because mm. will I ever be as good as him? Who will measure it? What is the measure of being better than Tarantino? Whereas I can mm. tell you I'm a better writer than I was two years ago because I can look at my own stuff and I can see it's two years better. And that's the in, in, and somebody told me that's the only thing you need to worry about, right? Then final final one is that your book includes extensive appendices that cover proverbs, love story types, and much more, including damning critical reviews of some of the most loved films in history. What was what was your thinking behind that? I wanted to write a screenwriting book which is focused in art and how art interacts with society historically, and um, I feel like. I feel like there's this attitude out there that every script that's ever been made is great. And therefore, if you write a great script, it's going to get made. And it's going to, like we've mentioned before, universally accepted by everyone's going to recognize the genius. And if you read the history books and look around, it's nothing like that whatsoever. It's just great to say that when you've had a film made. It's great to tell people, just write a great script, it will find its way. And it's like, no, absolutely. It's completely proven, completely false. So besides having this index of useful information, which came from the original web version of Turn and Burn, go on scriptrevolution.com, there is actually the original web version, which you can read for free and get some basics on. And the book's like 70% bigger now. Um, I included all these like proverbs and things like that in there. But one of the most fun things to do was to go through the like top 100 films in history, the most loved films in the world and find the most damning critical reviews from when it came out. And it's, and it's shocking because the way I've laid it out is you read the review before you see what the film is. And you read like these one star reviews that says like utterly unwatchable, repugnant, rubbish characters are horrible. I mean, it'll be like back to the future, you know, or Jurassic Park or Star Wars Mm. or, you know, incredibly highly acclaimed Academy Award winning. Shawshank Redemption was roundly ignored. Well, this is it, right? And it's helping people to try and appreciate that when you send your script out there and you enter a competition or you get this feedback on it and pay this money, you know, which kind of doubles the insult, you get this evaluation back. That when it comes back as a two or a pass or it doesn't qualify, that doesn't mean you have something that's bad. And you, you shouldn't go away and think, what is wrong with me? No one likes me, no one likes what I do. Writing, formatting, and structuring scripts isn't difficult. It isn't difficult to write a presentable product of a script. It all basically comes down to tone and voice and things like that more than anything. Mm. 
Mm. So rejection is absolutely, rejection, not just rejection, outright hate is normal. We talk about, you mentioned Tarantino. Tarantino had producers scribble offensive stuff on the front of scripts and send it back to his agent. They hated what he was doing before he started to connect with the right people, before he went to that garden party, bumped into Lawrence Bender, and he was the first producer he'd ever spoken to, and boom, look what happened. Like, everyone talks about this. And all the films that you that we love, yeah, they had a tough time getting there. It wasn't a unanimous um, form of love. But but also, what, what what was your thinking behind including proverbs and love story types? What were, what were you trying to get, what were you trying to do there for the writer? I think it's good to build stories around proverbs because proverbs are these kind of short little log lines that we, we give each other, or taglines that kind of summarise, you know, important things about life. You know, um, they're these little mini lessons that we teach one another. So building a story around that can be really good because your story needs to prove something. So these are kind of inspirational ideas that you can go, okay, I'm going to write about, you know, honor or decency or knavery and all these different things. And you can find these little proverbs and go, okay, that's the lesson. And I, I learned a lot from studying proverbs. I learned a lot about life affirming statements. And then the love story types and things like that, you know, these are just lists to show that there's certain ways you can do things. Like there's a, there's a little, like there's, there's ideas out there. There's a certain number of love type stories that you can go through, you know, about, you know, circles, love, unrequited, love that's criminal and, and things like that. Mm. And you can, and what I like to do is I like to go through these lists myself. I use my own guide to write my screenplays that get made into movies. I literally reference this stuff. That's why I share it because I find it useful. And so looking at the book as a whole, and I like to ask this to documentarians who go into the film and then it's like, what did you, your, so your perceptions going into writing this book, which you say is like 70% built more than, than what you'd already made available online. With that much reflection about writing, about your writing, about writing in general, what's one of, what's your kind of, what's a standout learning thing breakthrough you had while, while writing this book? Was there anything that you discovered in the process of writing the book that you didn't appreciate before writing it? Please answer the question. Ignore the dog. I feel that there's something that really became highlighted to me via contrast is the, the environment that we're creating for new writers, amateur writers, aspiring writers out there online in various other places is really self-destructive and damaging. Mm. Um, the narratives that are, presented the rhetoric that's established the guidance that is given from these kind of false gurus and the hierarchies that are built like it really knocks people down in in multiple ways you know and on top of that financially crippling too and it's quite dark it's quite dark it's quite bleak and it's orientated to this kind of academic grinding through like you're producing homework in the hope that you're going to get an A from the teacher. Mm. And that means you get to go to the next class. So this really challenges that and focuses more on art, happiness, uh, mindfulness, and trying to establish a modest career. If you're not aiming to jump through some hoops that you perceive are between you and success, and you're going to find a way to circumvent the hoops and sort of go your own way. I mean, I mean, one 
one of the things that I, you know, I remember from artist, fine artists in Manchester was that they were forever being told, you must go to Cork Street, get established by the galleries, then you can go out to the world. And they figured out, well, if I just go direct to Berlin or I just go direct to Venice, there isn't the obstacle. I don't have to wait for someone else's approval. I can talk and I can understand what might be needed. And in the same way, and I think that's maybe maybe that's the overwhelming thing if you're new when you're. I remember myself looking because so much of what's written about screenplays is about is this idea of rules and dogma, mm. and not about art. In fact, art is sort of like the bit that's taken out of the way, and it's the bit that, as I look back on it even in my short time that I've been trying to develop as a screenwriter, is creative writing, which is the kind of more free-thinking stuff, the less structured stuff, is the least, seems to have the least emphasis placed on it. And that's where your voice is going to come from because that's where your your your, your subconscious is going to have the most fun with, isn't it? Because it's the things that, that, the connections you make, which make you when you begin to write stuff down, you know, you... I think it's interesting because you're when you're writing lists like you talk about, you're responding to your own lived experience as well as the logic on the page. And if you leave it for a day or two, you'll have a different reaction than the one you would have done two days earlier. And it's there's a magic there. I don't quite know what it is. I don't understand how it works, but I'm glad it does. That's it. And that you've that's summarizing it. I don't know what it is. This is this is the problem. This is this is why it's stamped out. This is where the fear is based. What people are doing is they're desperately trying to take the unknown factor out of all this because it's terrifying. It's an absolutely terrifying concept to know that your entire future hinges on this kind of chaotic chance that the right person's going to look at what you write and be emotionally excited by that, emotionally stimulated by what you've done which is such an incredible freak occurrence. Now I've had the benefit of that in my life. Many people won't. And this is the cruel thing about the art world. And what everyone's trying to do is they're trying to stamp the subjectivity out because it's such a horrid, daunting thing. So everyone wants to talk, like you say, rules, dogmatic um, theories. They want to play team sports with the right number of act numbers and things like that. And they want to be told certain narratives and certain narratives also sell certain products. And yeah, as a result of that, we've stamped out this, the most beautiful part of it. And we've said, well, you know, arts, what can we say about it? Nothing other than it's completely open and a complete freedom of expression. And some people embrace complete liberation and every option coming to them. And see that as exciting and some people look at that like an agrophobic looks through their front door and they go no 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 i'm looking for something dead certain well you ain't gonna find it in film or any other form of the art world the notion that historical patterns can predict the future patterns that your brain's going to concoct is nigh impossible i would argue because it is you know, Eric Heisner, when he wrote Arrival, over that 11-year period he developed it, mm. there's no way you can tap into a process that got him to what became the Arrival screenplay, you know. No. I mean, the art that you create is a byproduct of your own chaotic existence mm. and the kind of emotional reflection that you've made on that, which is driven by chemicals and nervous systems and 
hazy memories and memories on top of memories and everything else. And the best thing you can do is go out there and unapologetically and without absolute authenticity is go and represent it in some way and say, look, this is my life. This is my view on life. This is what I've learned about life. And here it is wrapped up in an entertaining story. Take it or leave it. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, you've got to have the guts and determination to stand up. There's a lot of very, very apologetic screenwriters who want to be respected as artists. It, you can't have one without the other. You've got to go out there and take some risks if you want the respect at the other side. I mean, John August talks about this, something similar where it's, and it's, it's a sort of flaw of the writer in a way that you've always got to try and fight is you're always trying to please teacher because you feel like there's somebody mm. that you're trying to get a yes off. Whereas finding, and this is the, this is still difficult, finding the people to collaborate with where you're going to chime more often than not. That doesn't mean you won't get notes because they might say, love it, 75% of this, but I feel like we need more of this or more of the other or, you know, I don't think you should kill the grandma, you know, or whatever it might be. And that's a conversation with people who think like you, as opposed to trying to make you make something different. You've got to find people on the right vibe, the same, the same wavelength as you. And that's essential because it's going to be a lot easier. I'm very fortunate in that respect. I'm around people that think just like me. But yeah, you throw another person in the mix, you throw another opinion in the mix. Sometimes you've both got to fight for something because you're mm. like, no, this is what we believe in. Um, you know, you speak to a sales agent, speak to a financier maybe, and they have suggestions. And sometimes you have to make really ballsy decisions where you say, no, we're going to go back and say, this is what we want to do because we believe in it. But if you, but going back to where you started this conversation, which is the idea of pre-writing, the pre-writing is enabling, is fueling your understanding of what it is you're creating. So then when you get to the 95 page script, there's so much forethought gone in. And then that's been expanded on while the screenplay has been developed, that the conversations about what doesn't and does not work becomes about what I intended working versus not working, as opposed to fundamentally it's not right, <laughs> which is a whole, which is where we're just having a disconnect, isn't it? The last film that we made, we got an offer of funding off the back of a synopsis. I woke up in the morning. It was an idea that had been brewing in my head for a while. I sat down, I wrote a two-page synopsis, size 12, courier font, five acts, five paragraphs. Sent it to my producer. He said, that's awesome. We'll just make two tweaks here and there to like typos probably. It went out that afternoon and it came back with an offer of financing that day and went straight to an actor who said, hell yeah, except with a more expletive term than that. <laughs> Wanted to star in it. That's how you play the game, man. Um, especially from a business point of view. Go out there and, you know, there's a lot to be said for just say, hey, should we do this? That sounds like cool. That sounds like fun. And people get infected by that. I mean, you just ride that wave together. You start jamming together. That's an awesome way to collaborate. Get out the guitars, get out the drums, just start thrashing in the garage, man. You make it almost sound attractive. <laughs> Good. Right then, sir. So Turn and Burn, the scriptwriter's guide to writing better screenplays faster, is out now on, is it, do I pronounce it, Benny and Kearney? They're the publishers? Benny and Kearney are the publishers. You can get it on Amazon in the UK um, and the US. Um, and it's now just released on Kindle as well. So you can have it in magical digital form that comes across the internet and straight into your eyeballs via a small electronic device. Now we're Britflix and 
you mentioned about some of the films the films getting released in the USA. What what of your films can we see in the UK and how can we see them? Uh, you actually see absolutely none of them at the moment because Breakeven does not have a UK distributor yet. Um, it's still finishing up in the US. But we do have Double Threat coming up, um, which has got US distribution um, secured. It's going to do a little theatrical release, I believe. It's my first time I get a little bit of theatrical stuff going on. Um, but yeah, it, it's just US at the moment. Uh, I've got a website, rebelrouser.com. That's my production company website, which has these things on there. Mm-hmm. People can go and follow. I talk about it on Script Revolution, obviously. cjwally.com has a lot of this stuff on there as it's happening. But sadly, no, my UK friends have to import DVDs and buy. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say this, should I really? But I heard that you can buy DVD players that play from different regions. I heard. I've heard that as well. Don't do it, then. Don't do that. Okay. Well, look, congratulations on the film. Since I've spoken to you, congratulations on the films you've got produced. but And also, thank you. Congratulations on the book. There's. Uh, there's a mountain of advice in a slim tone, if that makes sense. No, that's a great way of summing up. Should have write that on the next release on the back. Well, look, thanks again for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Wonderful to be here, Stuart. Always love it, man. Thanks so much. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.